is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Well, as you can tell from this voice, it is not, in fact, the great one, Mark Levin. It is Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark is off early for Thanksgiving. He will be back on Monday. Make sure, by the way, that you check out Mark's new Fox show, which is coming February 2018, airing every Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Life, Liberty, and Levin on Fox News should be awesome. Don't worry, Mark is still available on Levin TV. Go to CRTV.com and start your free trial, and you can get access to every show CRTV offers, or you can call 844-LEVIN-TV, 844-LEVIN-TV. It's always an honor and a pleasure to sit in for Mark, and I hope that uh, you enjoy this as much as I do while you sit stewing in traffic trying to get out of town. All right, so this entire week, the last several weeks, there's been this wheel of fortune with perverse sexual characters. Like every other day, there's some story, not every other day, every other hour, there's some story about somebody from Hollywood or D.C. or journalism world who's been sexually harassing the help, who's been opening their robe at the at the employees, Charlie Rose, who has been allegedly grabbing sleeping women by the breasts, Sal Franken, who's been allegedly hitting on 15-year-old girls, Roy Moore. Every day, there's a, there's a new story about this. And in Hollywood, it's particularly frequent, but... The question was, who was going to be the unlucky person who was the last guy in the news before Thanksgiving hit? <laughs> because that person would obviously be the, the top story for at least three days because people are going to stop watching the news. Well, that unlucky guy is a guy named Representative Joe Barton. He's a Republican from Texas, and he has now released a statement on Wednesday apologizing for a graphic nude photo of him that circulated on social media earlier this week. Now... What makes Joe Barton a little bit different is that it is not clear that Joe Barton actually did anything wildly wrong here. It, it may very well be that he was sending pictures of his junk to women who were consenting to it, and then one of them actually was involved in what would be a misdemeanor in Texas, revenge pornography, releasing pictures of Joe Barton's ding-dong on the Internet. First of all, why anyone? Wh- wh- if you're Joe Barton and you're just sitting around going, you know, who wants a picture of my ding-dong? Have you seen Joe Barton? Like, Joe Barton is is not... A young, fit dude. Like, Joe Barton is, um, he looks like a congressman. Let's just put it that way. Apparently, he says, quote, while separated from my second wife prior to the divorce, I had sexual relationships with other mature adult women. Each was consensual. Those relationships have ended. I am sorry I did not use better judgment during these days. I am sorry I let my constituents down. This is being lumped in with uh, all the rest of these stories. It obviously is not that. It looks a lot more like revenge porn than it looks like anything that's serious sexual harassment or sexual abuse allegations. But one of the things that's been astonishing to watch across the board has been the media's rush to set up these new standards for what constitutes bad behavior. The media sets up these new standards with with regard to Behavior that is just out of bounds or levels of evidence that we have to believe. And all of it in an attempt to curb sexual harassment and sexual abuse, which is totally fine, obviously. I think that anyone who's sexually harassing women should be in trouble. Anyone who sexually abuses women should be in trouble. But one of the things that I found really astonishing amidst all of this bad male behavior that's now coming to light is this bizarre notion that men are bad, right? You just get this all over the place. Men are bad. And typically you get this from people on the left. Men. So terrible. So, for example, Politico's chief economic correspondent, a guy named Ben White, he tweeted earlier this week, my gender is terrible. And you get this from uh, a lot of women who are saying, well, it should be only women in politics. 
the men are, it's just men, masculinity. Men are bad. And the Time politics editor, a guy named Ryan Lee Beckwith, he tweeted, not tweeting tomorrow, not retweeting women. Men, join me. It's men who are the sinners. What's, what's particularly galling about all of this is that a lot of the same people who are suddenly realizing that men are capable of sin are the same people who say that there should be no rules whatsoever with regard to sexual conduct. The traditional sexual morality, that's a, yeah, a hallmark of a bygone era. All the people who spent decades tearing down traditional sexual morality are then surprised when the results of tearing down that morality are men uninhibited, men acting like more, more pigs than they ever were before. What's funny, if you're a traditional conservative, you're somebody like me, somebody like Mark, you're a traditional conservative, and you believe that if you come across a fence in a field, that you first have to decide why the fence was there in the first place before you can uproot it. This is the sort of G.K. Chesterton line about the difference between left and right. If you're on the left and you see a fence in the middle of a field, you immediately say, I don't know why this is here, and you tear out the fence. If you're on the right, you say, you know what, I'm going to go figure out why the fence was there in the first place, and then maybe I'll tear it out, but first I'm going to have to know why it was there in the first place. The left has no such compulsion. The left doesn't feel any need to, to figure out why the rules were there. They just assume, well, you know, I mean, the rules themselves were to blame for men acting badly. So here, let, let's, let's take this from the very beginning. Why were there rules? Why did traditional conservatives always believe in things like marriage? Why did traditional conservatives believe that there should be some sort of connection between sexual activity and commitment? Why did they have a social taboo against single motherhood? Why do they have carefully cultivated rules of conduct between men and women? In many religions, like my own, I'm an Orthodox Jew. In our religion, we have such carefully cultivated rules of conduct that the Mike Pence rule actually applies religiously to, to Orthodox Jews. Why was all that necessary? The reason is because conservatives understood certain basic things about human nature. Men, by nature, are over-sexualized. Men, by nature, have a very strong sex drive. Men, by nature, are bound to sin along these lines. And so we as a society have to set up all these boundaries. We have to set up. All of these fences. We have to have social mores. We have to have social condemnation. This is what keeps men in line. Right? Conservatives have always believed this. We've always believed in these sorts of rules. We believe that men have to be chivalrous. That even if a woman consents to particular activity, that doesn't necessarily mean the man should do it. And this is something that, that traditional conservatives always believed. The left never believed this, though. The left refused to acknowledge the inherent flaws in humanity. So the left wants it both ways. All men are pigs. But we won't treat it like all men are pigs. We'll just act really surprised that all men are pigs. Because if we actually acknowledged that men have the capacity for piggish behavior, maybe we'd set up some rules to, you know, hem them in. But instead of doing that, what the left said was, well, you know, all human beings are basically malleable. The reason that men are bad, the reason men act badly, is because of these rules. Right? Marriage taught men that women were property. So if we destroy marriage, then men will be better to women. Sexual taboos, they made people inhibited. And that made them violent. If we just get rid of the sexual taboos, everything will be fine. If we have chivalry, chivalry teaches men that women are weak and have to be protected. That means that they don't respect women as humans. So let's get rid of chivalry. We don't need chivalry. This is what the left thought about all of these rules. All of this seems really nice in theory, except that human nature is still human nature. When you remove the fences that guard the behavior, guard against bad behavior, when you remove the fences around human nature, the predictable result is that human nature runs wild. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's what we're seeing. Tearing down fences, it lets sin break out of its confines. Male misbehavior becomes more common, not less common. Male misbehavior has been pushed as kind of roguish and delightful. Watch, watch all the movies from the 1970s, Shampoo with Warren Beatty, where being sexually profligate 
with underage people is considered totally cool. Right? This is the culture the left built. It's been built since the sexual revolution. And now they're shocked when that revolution has casualties. They're shocked when it turns out that men are who men always were, except when you remove the constraints, when you take off the handcuffs, they act badly. Have women been freed of the male gaze? Are women better off now than they were in 1960 with regard to being victimized by men? Are they safer now? Are they more comfortable in the workplace? Or does it turn out that when you remove all of the boundaries, when you remove all of the lines, what you end up with is anarchy? Now, the left refuses to acknowledge this. And so instead, they do this sort of backhanded setting up of new rules. So the, the rules used to be things like marriage, commitment in sexual relationships, you know, being careful around members of the opposite sex. These used to be the rules. Now the left is setting up new rules. There's a poll out last week, I believe, that showed that 25% of young American women believed that it was sexual harassment to ask a woman out for a drink. So we got rid of the rules about marriage. We got rid of the rules about sexual promiscuity. But we're going to set up a new rule, and that is if I ask you for a drink, now I'm sexually harassing you. It's the equivalent of, of Al Franken grabbing your boobs while you're sleeping or sticking his tongue down your throat. Right, that, that's, the, that's the new rule. So we're going to set up these, these weird, vague new rules. If I ask you for a drink, sexual harassment, same poll. Should 40% of women said that if a guy complimented how they look, that was sexual harassment. So if I say, you look pretty today, that's sexual harassment, which is insane. I'm sorry, this is completely wild. In California, where I live, we have these yes means yes rules on college campuses, where legitimately you would have to have a full-time attorney sitting in a room with you and your paramour going through a checklist of things that you would have to fulfill. Do you consent to me touching your knee? Yes. Do you consent to me touching your hair? Yes. Do you consent to me kissing you? No. Okay, stop everything. Stop everything. Right? You're supposed to ask every one of these questions, and there's no way really to enforce this anyway unless there's a third party present, so it doesn't help very much. But on college campuses in California, this means that if you don't get an affirmative yes, right, if you're just making out with somebody, that you can actually be hauled up basically on campus charges under these yes means yes rules. So, unbelievably enough, the left has had to set up new fences, right? They got rid of all the old fences, because the old fences were hemming in human nature, and we know that humans are inherently good. So they got rid of all the old rules, and then it turns out that people were bad. And what did they do? They set up new rules. But the rules they set up aren't fences. They're walls. They're the Berlin Wall. And they're setting up new Puritan rules, rules that are almost impossible for anyone to abide by in real life. And that are arbitrarily applied. Because if somebody on the left breaks the rules, as we'll see, the new rules, if somebody on the left breaks those rules, like Al Franken, totally fine. If somebody on the right breaks those rules, then we have to have his head. If it's John Conyers, well, maybe we let him off. If it's Roy Moore, we definitely don't. Now, I'll have some stuff to say about Roy Moore a little bit later and where I think we should, where, where I think things stand as we near this, this election in Alabama. The problem here on a broad level is that we as a society used to have certain standards of behavior. Those standards of behavior were forcibly destroyed by the left. And then the end result was exactly what you would think it would be. The destruction of decent behavior among men. Not a shock at all. Well, as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about the most extreme reaction to sexual harassment culture, to quote-unquote rape culture, I've ever seen. It happened online yesterday. I'll tell you all about it. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Lovin. Ben Shapiro here in for Mark Levin. Mark took off early for Thanksgiving. As well he should. Well-deserved rest for Mr. Levin, the great one. He should be back 
on Monday, of course. Okay, so there's this lady named Emily Linden, and she is a self-described feminist. I guess she's the head of something she calls the Unslut Project. That's really, like, a thing. Um, and she writes for Teen Vogue, which has become the wokest magazine in America. I don't even know if it's actually published. I don't know if it's on newsstands or anything, but it's filled with all of these wild leftists who write insane things. And Emily Linden decided that it would be smart to go online and talk about her perspective on all the sexual harassment and sexual assault stuff. So she tweets this out. This is a direct quote. Quote, sorry, if some innocent men's reputations have to take a hit in the process of undoing the patriarchy, that is a price I'm absolutely willing to pay. So in other words, if you are wrongly accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault, then Emily Linden is fine with that. And then she continues, how many of our reputations have suffered unfairly? How many of our lives have already been destroyed because of physical violence against us? Why was that acceptable? But now one man's potentially unfair loss of a career opportunity is not. Well, uh, it wasn't acceptable if your life was ruined by physical violence. That's why we have rape laws and sexual assault laws. It's why we want people to go to jail for this sort of activity. She's basically saying that if, if you're innocent, if you're wrongly accused, then she's fine with you losing your career and being destroyed no matter what. Because, hey, you know, if a few innocents have to get hit, then that's just the way it goes. She says she's also not particularly worried, not especially worried about the possibility of false rape accusations because it never happens. Now, the, the funny thing about that is if you go back and you look at Emily Linden's history online, and what you will find is that she said that we should all believe Jackie who was the false rape accuser at the University of Virginia Frat. We should all have believed her, according to Emily Linden. Not only that, but we also should have believed Emma Sulkowitz, who you recall was a, a woman who at Columbia University accused a foreign exchange student of raping her, and then it turned out that all the evidence was on the other side, that he, in fact, did not rape her. The university had to pay out a settlement to this particular student. So she says that it never happens. She personally has endorsed two false rape accusations, two. But this is the direction we're moving. You hear this this routine from the left. All women must be believed. All women must be believed. Listen, I think that we should take every allegation extremely seriously. I've been very hard on Roy Moore, probably harder on Roy Moore than virtually everyone else on the right personally. But the idea that all women have a right to be believed, no. All women have a right to be listened to. But the right to be believed, that there's no right to be believed. We wouldn't have a criminal justice system if everybody had a right to be believed. That just wouldn't work. We wouldn't have to have criminal defense. You wouldn't have a Sixth Amendment right to an attorney. You wouldn't have any of these things if you had a right to be believed. We would just go along with the accusation. But this is the way that a, that a legitimate attempt to root out bad behavior can turn into a witch hunt. We have to have a common standard of evidence. We have to have some requirement that what you're saying be credible. It is just you said it, and so we're supposed to believe it. And if a few innocents get caught up in this, then no big deal. I mean, that, that really is Salem witch hunt type stuff. I mean, it's, it's something that when, when the situation is reversed, then the left, of course, becomes very hot and bothered about it. How dare we? You know, there has to be some evidence. You know, they, they said the same thing about Bill Clinton. Right? They said the same thing today about John Conyers. There's a representative today who is saying that John Conyers may not be guilty, even though John Conyers has paid out apparently sexual harassment settlements, and there are multiple allegations that he was harassing his staff. And the left wants standards when they're the ones in the dock. We all want standards when we're the ones in the dock, which is why we ought to have some basic level of standards. Now, the other side of that is that if we go too far in this direction we don't believe anybody, then a lot of bad people are going to get away with it. So there has to be some sort of happy medium. Now, in law, obviously, that's due process. 
In law, we're supposed to actually wait for the outcome of a trial. But in public opinion, there is no such thing as due process. We have to make a call right now. Right? We made a call in the last election cycle, for example, on Hillary Clinton. The American people knew that Hillary Clinton was a criminal, even if she was not indicted. Right? You knew that. That's why you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. You knew that. That's why many people voted for Donald Trump. Was Hillary convicted of anything? The answer is no. We all have to make up our minds, excuse me, as to what is credible and what is not. But that said, if the rule is that everything is credible, then nothing is credible. If the rule is that we can put innocent people, we can destroy innocent people's careers without even a second thought, then that relieves us of the burden of thought, and it's going to incentivize false accusations on a routine basis. You want to make false accusations more plausible? You want to make them more common? All you have to do is say that every accusation ought to be believed. So Emily Lynn, I mean, it's just crazy. I'm old enough to remember when the left used to routinely say things like, you know, the, 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 the old slogan, better that ten guilty men should go free than one innocent man should go to jail. Right? When I was growing up, the... the most beloved book in America was To Kill a Mockingbird, which was all about a false rape accusation made for political reasons. But according to the extreme left, we can't have any standards with regard to marriage because that's patriarchal. But we should believe every accusation of rape or sexual harassment because otherwise that's patriarchal. Alrighty then. As we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about why Hollywood, journalism, politicians, why do they think they can get away with it? Like really, what goes through their heads that they think they can get away with this behavior? It's something deep and something upsetting. I'm Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin, America's passionately cerebral voice. Talk with that voice now. 877-381-3811. All right, Ben Shapiro here in for Mark Levin. And uh, somebody, unfortunately, just texted me the actual pictures of Joe Barton, the representative from Texas. I got to say, fellows... Just note, okay, I've been married for, for 10 years. I have a couple of kids. Note, no one wants to see a picture of your dong. Okay, let's just start with <laughs> what's going through. Joe Barton said he's 68 years old, man. He's 68, 68 years old, and he's texting with these women. Like, I understand that, that everybody's in better shape now. We got Viagra, but at some point, doesn't your prostate give out? Like, at some point, don't, don't you start thinking about whether you are, I mean, it's the Pillsbury Doughboy texting over here. Ay, ay, ay. Just, ugh. Terrible stuff. One of the things that, that uh, makes me wonder about human nature is the fact that so many of these guys think they can get away with this stuff. Like, so many of these guys think they can get away with anything. Like, you read those Charlie Rose allegations. Charlie Rose, the, the insufferable PBS host, or former PBS host. And he was inviting young women over to his palatial estate. And then he would just emerge into the pool area in a robe. And then he would just open his robe. Which is like the, the typical creep move. Apparently Weinstein used to do this as a Hugh Hefner move too. Like, I don't know how many pornos these guys watched where they think, oh well, you know, there's a woman who's 50 years my junior. And what she really wants to see is my old man stuff and just, just open it right up like Charlie Rose. Why these guys thought they can get away with it is beyond me. Right? The New York Times is Glenn Thrush. Harassing young female journalists, like going to bars, getting them drunk and then trying to make out with them. It, it, how does, it, how do these people think they can get away with this? Right, how does Weinstein, how did he think he could get away with raping, like, apparently a dozen women? How do you think you can get away with this just because you're so powerful? And I think that it has something to do with not just the human nature of human beings with power, but also the nature of, of the American public. And we like to think of ourselves as supremely egalitarian. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, we, we have respect for no man unless he's earned it. You know, like the cowboy ethic. And unless you're, unless you're out there on the prairie working your 
working your horse, we have no respect for you. But if you're just one of these gilded elites, if you're somebody who's born into it, and then, you know, well, we have no respect just based on that. I don't, unfortunately, think that's true. I wish that were true. I don't think that's true. I think there is something in human nature that causes us to treat people differently if we see them as part of a, a sort of aristocracy. And all these guys know it. The reason the misconduct has become so common now is because there is a privileged elite class, not by the law, but by us. We're the ones who create it. We're the ones who treat Hollywood celebrities as though they're a different class of people. Like, I know all these people, okay? I, I live in Hollywood. I know a lot of Hollywood celebs. Most of them are morons. And most of them don't have two brain cells to run together. I, I, I've got, I, I know all the top politicians in D.C. One of the great lies about how Washington, D.C. works, it's something both left and right push, is this idea that everybody in D.C. knows what they're doing. That they're these great godlike figures, that everything is house of cards, right? everything is planned down to the minutest detail. Everything is, is super well thought out and intellectually coherent. And a bunch of dolts. Let's be real about this. Washington, D.C. is filled with idiots. Hollywood is filled with idiots. And journalism is filled with idiots. Right? There are lots of idiots out there, but we treat them as aristocracy because of three things. right? Money, fame, power. Those are the three things, and anybody who has... One of those three is treated as aristocracy and will basically let them get away with virtually anything until the point when it just becomes too much and we can't anymore. And historically speaking, this has been true. The difference is that, it, again, it doesn't make sense to have this in America. It made sense in a time when there was a landed aristocracy. When you go back and watch Braveheart, you see that there are these people who have power, these evil people who have power. Then the idea, by the way, of prima nocta, the idea that somebody gets married, and then the lord of the feudal manor comes down and, and rapes the, the wife on the first night. This has never been shown to have happened, but that, that myth existed specifically because there were so many people who were afraid that that was going to happen, that the lords and ladies of the manor were going to exploit them. And they could, right? If, if you didn't listen to them, they'd throw you off the land. There have been times in American history where this has been true. If you were a sharecropper working for a, a landowner, and you ticked off the landowner, the landowner could destroy your life. But that's not true in the United States anymore. Or at least it shouldn't be true in the United States anymore. And yet we still treat these people like this. We treat them like they're a sultanate, and they deserve their harems. Right? They, there are peasants of old who sought to curry favor with the lords. Right now, there are a lot of Americans who are seeking to curry favor with the powerful. So the powerful have all these opportunities to exploit women. Powerful men have lots of opportunities to exploit women, because that's the story of the Hollywood casting couch. If you want to be in this movie, if you want to be famous, if you want to be rich, if you want to enter the elite, then you're going to have to make time with the Lord. It's the story of these famous journalists. Like every woman who testified about Glenn Thrush basically said, I didn't want to rat on him because I was afraid he'd ruin my career. Same thing with Charlie Rose. Women thought the only way they could get ahead was to treat these men with complacence. They thought they couldn't turn down dinner invites. And if they were abused, they thought they had to keep their mouth shut. But that brings us to the second point. It's not just about people trying to get ahead and feeling like it's in their best interest to keep their mouth shut if they're abused. It's because the public, we in the public, it's our fault. We don't offer a lot of consequences for the elite until it becomes too unpalatable, until they become too useless. And there's certain dark sides of human behavior where we revel in the pain inflicted by others. So it's tempting to say right now that we've sort of woken up, that now we're seeing all of this bad behavior and we're finally waking up to... to the evils that are inherent in humanity. I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's true. I think right now there's a big pylon going on, and we're having lots of fun jumping on everybody with both feet. But I think that as soon as the cost becomes too high, then we back off. And that's what I think we're seeing 
for the Democrats on Al Franken and John Conyers. I think it's what we're seeing on the Republicans for Roy Moore. I think that we're seeing it across the board. When the price becomes too high, it's, and the price is most eminent, it's most eminently obvious in politics. In Hollywood, okay, so you throw a director out of his, out of his livelihood. Okay, so we just don't get any more Harvey Weinstein produced films. Big deal. Okay, so John Lasseter, the head of Pixar, really talented guy. He just had to take a leave of absence from his job because he was apparently sexually harassing people. You know, well, okay, fine, so he loses his job. So there will be somebody else who steps in and makes the, the Pixar films. But when it comes to politics, when it comes to journalism, then all of a sudden our hypocrisy kicks in. We, we like to think that we have a new standard in place, that a new day has broken. I don't think that's right. I just think that the hypocrisy is going to get worse. I don't think it's going to get better. And the evidence that I have for this is that if you actually look at how even the journalism community is treating all of this, it's pretty astonishing. Right? The media community is already defending its own. Glenn Thrush is too valuable for the New York Times to dump him. According to Vanity Fair today, the Times is torn about whether Glenn Thrush should lose his job over sexual misconduct allegations. That's the same New York Times that's been ripping on Trump and ripping on Roy Moore. And suddenly they're saying that they may want to keep him around, Glenn Thrush, even though he was apparently exploiting all of his uh, junior associates. The Times has announced that it was investigating the matter. Glenn Thrush was suspended, and Thrush issued an apology. But apparently the news organization is, is not sure what to do. One veteran Times editor says, people are feeling embarrassed, discouraged, and vulnerable. Times, mag- Times management, they know they're in the spotlight, but are they going to do anything? Executive editor Dean Baquette and CEO Mark Thompson both sent staff memos addressing the issue. They said the alleged behavior described in the piece is clearly not in keeping with the values we expect from Times employees. But it's unclear whether the Times is actually going to fire him. Right? People are wrestling with whether the allegations against Thrush warrant his termination. A question perhaps complicated by the fact most of the events occurred prior to his hiring and didn't involve any Times colleagues, according to Vanity Fair. For some people, Thrush's misdeeds were not of the same magnitude as those of, say, Mark Halperin, who lost his book deal and his TV gig after he was sexually harassing and assaulting women. But here's, the, here's where the test of morality meets the road. What are you willing to sacrifice for your morality? What are you willing to sacrifice for issues of character? Where are you willing to draw the line? Are you willing to say as a news organization, I'm going to lose my top reporter because he was sexually harassing people? Are you willing to say as a voter, I'm willing to lose a race? You know, it's a harder, that's a harder one. Are you willing as a party to say I'm willing to lose a, a Senate seat or a House seat or a presidency based on these moral qualms? I think most of us believe there are certain lines. Most of us believe, but we have to actually think about what those lines are going to be. Because if we don't think about what those lines are going to be, they just stop existing altogether. Because we have these false idols. Here's the reality. The lives that we live here in the United States, in a free country, yes, politics matters. It matters an insane amount. Politics matters. I, I believe it. I believe in deep in my heart. I believe that politics matters an enormous amount. It's why I spend every day talking politics and writing politics. It's why I spend every day going to campuses and talking politics with young people. It's what I do for a living. But what makes us have a society is when we stop worshiping politics, when we stop worshipping Hollywood, when we stop worshipping the institutions of power and privilege, and we start looking at each other as neighbors and saying, would I want any of these people babysitting my kid? Because if we don't have that, we don't have a common society. If we don't have that, it's going to be very difficult for us to live with each other. And if we can't live with each other, how in the world are we supposed to have a democracy? You know, If every time we lose an election, it's legitimately the end of the country, then how much longer can this last? 
If every election comes down to how bad a person am I willing to elect in order to prevent somebody else from being elected, then I don't think we're far from the absolute dissolution of the country itself. And listen, I understand that political matters matter. I understand that we're more divided than we ever have been on some key issues. But there are certain issues we aren't divided on. And right now we have a bit of a prisoner's dilemma here, where the left wants to stand by its sexual assaulters and molesters, and the right wants to stand by its bad guys. And then all that happens is that the bad guys inhabit the halls of power, and we see each other as bad people for having greenlit that. How is that good for the country? How is that good for the future of the parties? How is that good for your ideology in the future? I want to talk a little bit more about all of this. Also, I want to give some props to President Trump, who said, I think, exactly the right thing with regard to Congress and sexual harassment yesterday. It got overshadowed by all of his comments about Roy Moore, which we'll get to, too. But I want to talk about President Trump saying that it's time for Congress to come clean about its own issues with sexual harassment. I'm Ben Shapiro, and for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. As you know by now, Michigan Representative John Conyers, Democrat, longest-serving member of the House of Representatives. He basically has a feudal fiefdom over there. He's been there for 22 terms, I believe, 22 terms. At this point, you need some fresh blood. He settled a wrongful dismissal complaint in 2015 with a former employee who alleged she was fired because she would, quote, not succumb to sexual advances. Again, all these old pervs in Congress, pretty ridiculous. Control yourselves, guys. I mean, especially Conyers. Apparently, a few years ago, there was a picture of him reading Playboy on a uh, on an airplane. He was not reading it for the articles. And one of the big things that has come out from this is that Congress is basically allowed to I mean, Congress people are allowed to sexually harass people, and then we get to pay for it, which is supremely exciting. I mean, I just there's nothing I love better than the idea of having money taken out of my pocket, away from my children, so that I can pay for John Conyers to to get his rocks off by grabbing his employees. But, like, that's, that's, that's just what I know. I get up in the morning, and I think to myself, I'm so glad the founders created this great nation so that I could pay for John Conyers to, uh, to pleasure himself. Like, that, that just, that, that's what I live for. Here's the system by which they hide all of these settlements. So according to BuzzFeed, which actually did a good piece of research on this, the Congressional Office of Compliance has a complaint process. Here's how it works. You have 180 days for reporting any incident. Then... 30 days after you report the incident, there's mandatory counseling. And then after that, here's the part that's crazy. The employee is forced to sign a confidentiality agreement, either to file a lawsuit or to go to mediation. So now it's secret. So now we don't know. Now we have no clue who said what. Now we don't know who was harassed. We have no idea. It's a mystery now. Then there's a mandatory mediation, a mandatory cooling-off period. A mandatory cooling-off period. So John Conyers grabbed some lady in an inappropriate place, and she has to have a mandatory cooling off period. Then, finally, you file a formal complaint 90 days since you report the incident. So now there's a 270-day delay, <laughs> nearly a two-thirds of a year delay. And then, after that, you get a, a federal district court action. You can either file a lawsuit or you can have an administrative hearing with a negotiation and a settlement approved by the Committee on House Administration, and then finally the settlement. But who pays for the settlement? Why, you pay for the settlement, of course. According to the documents, one of the people who was paid off was paid off as an employee. She was basically given $27,000 to go away. She was, she was paid 
uh, three months of, of severance, essentially. According to BuzzFeed, the woman who settled with Conyers launched the complaint with the Office of Compliance in 2014, alleging she was fired for refusing his sexual advances and ended up facing a daunting process that ended with a confidentiality agreement in exchange for a settlement of more than $27,000. Her settlement, however, came from Conyers' office budget rather than the designated fund for settlements. There's a designated fund for settlements. Also, you can hide the payments by pretending that these people are still working for you. Congress doesn't have an HR department. Instead, congressional employees have 180 days to report a sexual harassment incident to the Office of Compliance, which is just awesome. It turns out that Congress has set up approximately the same level of oversight over itself that it's set up with regard to insider trading. You remember back in 2011, there's a story by Peter Schweitzer, a very, very good researcher. And Schweitzer, uh, he, he wrote an entire book about how Congress people were getting rich. They were entering Congress middle class, poor, and exiting with millions of dollars. Why? Because they were able to direct millions of dollars into their own pocket. They could basically insider trade. There's a story about Denny Hastert, then the Speaker of the House, that Hastert had apparently made millions of dollars by owning property and then directing that a highway be built near the property. And this sort of thing has been happening routinely throughout American politics. The idea that the stock market that the stock market uh, could be gamed by people who know when legislation is going to pass, what the specific provisions are. And no one pays attention to these thousand-page bills except the lobbyists and apparently the Congress people who make money off of it. So President Trump vowed to come in and drain the swamp. Uh, thus far, I have not seen a tremendous amount of swamp draining. Uh, his, his regulatory reform has been quite good. But yesterday he made a comment that, that sort of went overlooked because of all the Roy Moore hubbub that I think is important and good for President Trump for saying it. He said it's time to actually make transparent the Congressional Slush Fund for Grabbing Women's Boobs. Do you believe Congress should release the names of lawmakers who have settled on sexual harassment claims? I do. I really do. I think they should. Thank you. Well, good. I mean, th- th- this is right, and Trump is correct. Obviously, that's something that, that we should be doing. Uh, I know that uh, Congressman Ron DeSantis from Florida, uh, he's proposing legislation to do exactly this, to get rid of the, the, n- the mandatory non uh, non-disclosure agreement, the, the mandatory NDA, that prevents us from knowing which of our Congress people are doing this. What's hilarious is that there are Democrats who are certainly defending other Democrats, like Jackie Spire is a Democrat, and when the Conyers reports came out, before they came out, she said there are two members of Congress who are routine sexual harassers that we all know about. Right? That's what she said. And then, she, and then she was asked, was Conyers one of them? She said no. Well, okay, Jackie, could we have like a clue? We, we are the constituents, after all. We're the ones paying for these guys. Apparently, we're paying for them to even sexually harass women. So why shouldn't we be able to know the answers to this? It just demonstrates, once again, you can't give people power. Everybody thinks it's all about electing the right people. Oh, if we just elect the right people, if we just elect the best, the most character-driven people, then everything will be fine. Yeah, no, that no, 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 no. We need to minimize their power, get rid of their cash, get rid of their slush fund, get rid of their their non-transparency, and then we'll see who's clean and who's dirty. When you give people insane amounts of power, you can't be surprised when it turns out that they turn that power in their own favor, which is exactly what's happened. Well, speaking of power in politics, President Trump has finally responded to Roy Moore, and it's leading to an absolute conflagration, a political conflagration. We'll tell you what President Trump finally had to say about Roy Moore yesterday. Plus, we'll get to Democrats and what they're now saying about Al Franken. Hint, hint, everyone is a terrible hypocrite. I'm Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. He's here. He's here. Now, 
Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Alrighty, so here I am, Ben Shapiro, in for Mark Levin. Always an honor to be sitting behind the microphone on behalf of the great one. He is off a little bit early for Thanksgiving vacation. He will be back on Monday. And, of course, make sure that you keep an eye out for Mark's new Fox News show. I am super pumped about this great move by Fox News, great programming move by the folks over at Fox News. Life, Liberty, and Levin starting February 2018, airing every Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Should be awesome. Don't worry, Mark's still going to be on Levin TV as well. Make sure that you call up 844-LEVIN-TV to subscribe. That's 844-LEVIN-TV. Obviously, his CRTV show uh, is every day. And uh, his new Fox News show is on Sundays. So check that out as well. Okay, so now the media are going bonkers over President Trump because Trump has finally responded to the allegations regarding Roy Moore. And to say he's responded to the allegations really just means he hasn't responded, but he said something. Because that's basically what happened yesterday. Everybody has been asking for weeks now what Trump was going to say about the Roy Moore allegations. Because there are, in my opinion, highly credible allegations against Roy Moore that he was molesting underage women. Okay, that he that he apparently took a 14-year-old girl, this is the accusation, back to his cabin where he attempted to have sex with her. And then when she protested, he stopped and brought her home. And there was a 16-year-old girl, uh, then 16, I guess, he was in his early 30s. And she accuses Moore of offering her a ride home in his car and then attempting to rape her, essentially, uh, and then pushing her out of the car. There are also a lot of allegations that he was hanging around high schools and and trying to date underage women. Now, I know a lot of people have brushed some of this stuff off. I'm going to give you my honest opinion on what I think of these allegations. And then I'm going to discuss, you know, where the Republican Party should go, what Trump should do and all this. In my opinion, having watched the women speak, having looked at the corroborating evidence, having looked at Moore's defenses, I think that Moore is not telling the truth. I think that at least a lot of these allegations are true. This is just my opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. I don't find the women uncredible. I find the plethora of of allegations disquieting. I think that Moore's defense has been extraordinarily weak. I think the idea that somebody forged a yearbook from 1977 in order to get Roy Moore uh, is is really bizarre. Now, two things can be true at once. This can be a political hit. It pretty clearly is. Do I think that the Washington Post would have been digging around the back swamps of Alabama looking for people to testify about sexual allegations against Roy Jones, uh, against uh, Doug Jones? Roy Moore's opponent? No, I don't. But just because something is politically motivated doesn't mean it's untrue. And I speak from experience here. I was with Andrew Breitbart. You know, I knew Andrew very well. I was good friends with Andrew. And I knew Andrew really well when the Anthony Weiner stuff broke. Anthony was no political ally of Anthony Weiner. There's no doubt in my mind that, you know, Andrew's dislike for Anthony Weiner definitely played into how Andrew treated that story. But the story was true, and Anthony Weiner needed to go. So just because there's a politically motivated hit doesn't mean that the hit isn't true. The same thing was true of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and Paula Jones and all the rest of it. We're, we're in the business of politics. That means that most hits are going to be political. The question is whether there is truth to the allegations or not. I think the allegations are pretty credible. The, the holes that I've seen attempted to be poked in the stories are extraordinarily weak. I've heard stories that people saying things like, well, you know, the original accuser, she says that she talks on the phone from her bedroom, but there's no phone in her bedroom. Right, but her mom said that she could actually bring the phone into her bedroom, so I'm, I failed to see how that's relevant. There's another story out yesterday about how the original accuser, the one who said she was 14 when she met Roy Moore, that, that she was uh, only in custody with her mom for 12 days. Did Roy Moore really make a move within those 12 days? Again, these are, these are not strong 
These are not strong defenses by Roy Moore. Maybe one of the reasons why his communications director stepped aside today, uh, which is which is a piece of news. So with all of that said, with all that said, if you believe that these allegations are at least strong, that they're at least based, if you believe that, and I would recommend, honestly, I have a very simple rule when it comes to things like this. That is, take the foot, put, uh, take the shoe, put it on the other foot. Pretend for a second that these exact allegations, not the allegations that are actually made about Al Franken, these exact allegations about Roy Moore were made about Al Franken. A woman came out and said, Al Franken molested me when I was 14. Another woman came out and said, Al Franken molested me when I was 16. Everybody in this town of this, this town that Al Franken came from said Al Franken was hanging around high schools when he was 33, looking for 15-year-olds. How would you treat that? Would you treat that with the same level of skepticism that you're treating Roy Moore? If the answer is no then I would suggest that you're allowing politics to cloud your judgment. If the answer is yes, then we have to proceed to step number two, which is what do you do about it? So here's where Trump comes in. I was hopeful that President Trump was going to get involved in this race because I think that, number one, the only person who's in danger of losing this race right now is Roy Moore, right? Roy Moore is running in a state where no Republican Senate candidate has won less than 60% of the vote since 2002. Okay, this is the reddest of red states. Roy Moore is, con- is, is currently running a two-point race with Doug Jones at best. He may be behind Doug Jones. Before the allegations, it was still too close. Even before the allegations, this was an 8-10 to point race. In Alabama, that's a dead heat. Because the fact is that Jeff Sessions, was, last time Jeff Sessions ran, he won 99% of the vote. <laughs> so this is not a blue state. Okay, Roy Moore is not a good candidate. And the fact that Roy Moore was running a close race and then this broke and now he's running a neck-and-neck race, that means that this is, you know, Roy Moore's own making at this point. The best thing for the Republican Party would have been for Moore to step aside. Moore's not going to step aside. Now, some people say that that's, that's good evidence that he's not actually guilty, right, that Roy Moore is not stepping aside. He's standing and he's fighting. It's also evidence that Roy Moore is Roy Moore. I mean, Roy Moore has been doing this his entire career. I think sometimes for good. I think sometimes for ill. Roy Moore is not a guy who's ever going to step aside. But Trump had the capacity to maybe push Roy Moore aside and say to people, listen, I'm going to take my attorney general, Jeff Sessions. He's going to run a write-in campaign. We're going to maintain the seat. We know that Trump isn't that fond of Sessions anyway. We'll move him out of the AG slot. We'll move him back into the Senate. He'll save the seat for Republicans. And that would have been my preferred course of action here. Instead, President Trump is finally asked about all of this, and he steps forward and defends Roy Moore. Here's what he had to say. I can tell you one thing for sure. We don't need a liberal person in there, a Democrat, Jones. I've looked at his record. It's terrible in crime. It's terrible in the border. It's terrible in the military. I can tell you for a fact, we do not need somebody that's going to be bad on crime, bad on borders, bad with the military, bad for the Second Amendment. Is an accused child molester better than a Democrat? Is an accused well, he child denies molester it. better Look, than a Democrat? Well, he denies Demo- it. I mean... If you look at what what is really going on and you look at all the things that have happened over the last 48 hours, he totally denies it. He says it didn't happen. And, you know, you have to listen to him also. You're talking about, he said 40 years ago this did not happen. So, you know. Okay, so there's two arguments that Trump is making. One is, I think, better than the other. The the first argument that he is making is that we don't need somebody liberal in the Senate in Alabama. And this is the, the full-fledged, I don't care who this guy is, I don't care what this guy has done, so long as it keeps Doug Jones out of the Senate, fine. Right? It's sort of the anti-Hillary argument that we got in the last election cycle, which, you know, I think was not a bad argument, but it didn't I didn't find totally convincing. In any case, Doug Jones, he's right that Doug Jones is radical. Okay, here's, a, here's Doug Jones last night on MSNBC discussing his abortion position. 
Remember, this is in Alabama. He's saying that he is for abortion all the way to point of birth. This is Doug Jones, a guy who could sit in the Senate from Alabama, which is insane. I am a firm believer that a woman should have the freedom to choose what happens to her own body. Uh, and I'm going to stand up for that, and I'm going to make sure that that continues to happen. Uh, I want to make sure that as we go forward, uh, people have access to contraception. They have access uh, to the abortion uh, that they might need. Uh, if that's what they choose to do, I think that that's going to be an issue that we can work with and talk to people about from both sides of the aisle. It's one of those But you wouldn't legislate, so you wouldn't be in favor of legislation that said ban abortion after 20 weeks or something like that? Now, I, I, I'm not in favor of anything that is mm -hmm. going to infringe on a woman's right uh, and her freedom to choose. That's just the position that I've had for many years. Uh, it's the position I continue to have. But when those people, I want to make sure people understand that right. once an, a, a baby is born, I'm going to be there for that child. I, okay, so Doug Jones is a radical, right? I mean, Doug Jones is a guy who says that you should be able to abort a baby all the way to point of birth, but then we'll have welfare the day after. So that's, that's why he's pro-life. He is a very radical guy. Trump is right about that. This is what we call an argument that proves too much, however. Right? In law school, they called it an argument that proves too much, an argument that is so strong that it ends up proving more than you want it to prove. So let's say that O.J. Simpson were up for a Senate seat, and O.J. Simpson clearly murdered his ex-wife. We all know it, but he wasn't convicted for that, but he, we clearly did it. And O.J. Simpson's going to vote the right way. Do you vote for O.J. Simpson? I mean, these are questions I think that are good hypotheticals to ask yourself about ends and means. Right? Is this, is this, are we going to achieve an end that we want having somebody who votes our way by putting somebody who is credibly alleged to have committed child molestation in the United States Senate? Right? So that, that's point number one that Trump makes. I think that it's, it's, you know, an argument that proves too much. Point number two is where he basically says, Roy Moore denies. So I don't know the answer, so Roy Moore denies. Okay, that's fair enough if that's your actual standard. If your actual standard is you don't know the answer, you don't think like I do, right? You, you, you look at the evidence and you think differently than I do about the evidence on Roy Moore. You think that he's probably innocent or you think there's a political hit or you think that none of it's true or you think that you just don't know, right? And you're not, it's not a cop-out. You actually just don't know. That's fair. I'm not sure it's fair on the part of Trump. I don't, you know, and, and I, I, I hate to be skeptical of the president on this, but the president has said this he denies routine. You know, he denies. Yeah, a lot of people deny a lot of stuff. You know, Hillary Clinton denied wrongdoing. Did that stop Trump from saying she was a criminal? Of course not, because she was a criminal, right? I mean, just because you deny it doesn't mean you didn't do it. So I think that we have to analyze our own hearts here. Are we copping out because we want the political win? Are we copping out, or are we making an objective assessment of the evidence? Or are we just going to say, listen, it doesn't matter what this guy did, I just don't want a Democrat in the Senate. Are we really going to say that a child molester who votes with us is better, or an alleged child molester who votes with us is better than a than somebody who does not molest children uh, who votes against us? Right. That's, that's the question that I think we're going to ask ourselves. And I'm, I'm asking each individual to take this into your heart and think about what you would do. So I know my answer, which is I would stay home. Okay, that's, that's my answer. I'm not going to cop out. I would stay home. I can't vote for Doug Jones. He's a radical. But I wouldn't vote for Roy Moore either because I think that he's been credibly accused of child molestation. I would write somebody in. And I would try to lead a writing campaign in some place like Alabama. But that's my take. Maybe you analyze the evidence differently. Maybe Trump analyzes the evidence differently. But I'd like to hear that analysis of the evidence. Now, as we continue here, I want to take your calls on this because I know this is a pretty controversial position. You know, Maybe you believe that everybody in Alabama needs to vote for Roy Moore, that, that either... His alleged crimes don't matter compared to his vote, or you just don't believe the allegations themselves. And I'll, I'll let you have your say. 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Ben Shapiro, in for Mark Levin. 
In from Mark Levin taking the apparently relatively unpopular position uh, that the allegations against Roy Moore are credible and that Moore should step down. But I want to hear your thoughts on it because I'm willing to be convinced if I, I think you have a convincing argument. So take your best shot. Tim in Canton, Ohio. You're on the Mark Levin Show with Ben Shapiro. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? Hey, doing pretty well, Tim. How are you? I'm doing all right. I, I must admit I'm a little shocked by your position. And uh, if I could, I'll just try to explain it real quick. Sure. I'm a... I'm a I'm a uh, West Point graduate, uh, just like he is, okay? And I guess that gives me a little bit of a, of a perspective on him and his background. You know, and for allegations like this to come up, you know, four weeks before the election, when he's been in public service for 40 years and nothing has happened, you know, gives me the, the idea that, you know, something's wrong here. Okay, so Tim, I hear that. I hear the idea that it's a political hit. I mean, I even said I'm not sure these things are mutually exclusive. It can be a political hit. It can also be true. The Washington Post started digging around, and even according to Breitbart, which is very much on Roy Moore's side, this the, these ladies had to be convinced to come forward by the Washington Post. Okay, well, that being said, okay, so let's let's take a look at the standard then. If I wanted to run for political office in, in Ohio, okay, and I have a family and I've not done anything immoral for a you know for the last mm-hmm. 40 years and 4 weeks before an election a bunch of people come up and start accusing me of stuff and now everyone in the in the media says oh he's guilty Okay, because they don't know anything. Else. Oh yeah, Tim, listen, I'm I'm as scared of that as you are. And that's why I'm saying I think that we have to sort of determine on our own whether we think allegations are, are credible or not. Because let, let me ask you a question, Tim. Do you think that Juanita Broderick's allegations against Bill Clinton were were credible? I have no idea. So I, I, I think they were. I think Juanita Broderick's allegations were credible. They happened apparently in 1978. She first started talking about them in 1999. Virtually everybody on the right thinks Juanita Broderick is credible. Even some people on the left are now saying that she's credible. So the delay is not dispositive. Now, again, if, I, if Roy Moore can make a good defense on this stuff, then I'm willing to hear it. But And we're not in a court of law. In a court of law, I would not vote to convict Roy Moore because I don't see the the evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt. But in politics, it's not really about beyond a reasonable doubt. It's whether you believe the allegations are true or not, right? You don't have to actually convict Hillary Clinton in order to keep her out of office. Well, I I guess that you have to go further than that, in my opinion. You have to look at the character of the person in question. I mean, before all this happened, no one would have ever questioned Roy Moore's character. I mean, he's an evangelical Christian. He's been a judge that stood for, you know, evangelical conservative values for for decades. You know, he's a West Point graduate. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And that's why I'm that's why it's so disturbing to me. But, you know, again, I think that we can we can agree to disagree. And what I appreciate a bit, Tim, is that if you really believe that he's innocent, then by all means, back Roy Moore. I've, I've always said this. Right? I, I just, I'm not convinced that he's innocent, and not only do I'm, I'm not convinced, I think that the allegations are pretty credible against him, given the number of them, given the nature of them, given the corroborating evidence of them. But, as I've said, if you believe that he's innocent, then by all means, not only should you vote for Roy Moore, you should give money to his campaign. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely hear what you're saying, Tim. I just, I guess we disagree on, on the nature of the evidence. Hey, Kevin, in, uh, in Montague, New Jersey, you're on the Mark Levin Show with Ben Shapiro. Ben, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Go for it. I have a lot of uh, red flags that are coming up um, on the accusations against Roy Moore that I don't like. Um, one, for instance, is like uh, I was telling your screener that if he molested a 14-year-old girl, um, there would be no statute of limitations on that. And I think the law enforcement would be like, indicting the guy right now. Yeah, so Kevin, normally I agree, but actually the law in Alabama is very weird this way. So at the time, the statute of limitations would have expired three years after the incident, between 1980 and 1983. But then they removed the statute of limitations for any sex offense involving a victim under 16 years of age, but it only applied to crimes committed before a certain date. So it turns out that, this is at least according to the, the local Alabama papers, more couldn't be brought up on criminal charges now in connection to those sex abuse charges. So I, I would normally agree with you, but, they, but I think that that's, that's not quite the case. Well, I mean, Gloria Allred does not want to surrender that yearbook for examination. You know what I mean? Right, because she's, she's an attention whore. I mean, like that's, everyone knows that, that Gloria Allred is that. Like the, the, the best case against these accusers is that they're using Gloria Allred. I agree with you there, for sure. For sure. I will also say that one of the people that Gloria Allred, is, some of the people she's represented before, are actually, like, you know, worthy of, of, of listening to. Like Ginger Lee was a porn star who said that Anthony Weiner instructed her to lie to the cops. And uh, and Glory all rep- all red represented Ginger Lee. So all I'm asking is a consistent standard here. We'll take more of your calls if you can if you can make a case for Roy Moore. Plus, the Democrats show their hypocrisy at the same time. I'm Ben Shapiro, in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin, America's think tank. And you can call him at 877-381-3811. So Ben Shapiro here for Mark Levin. We're talking about Roy Moore, but now I want to flip the script a little bit and talk about Al Franken. Brand new breaking <laughs> Oh, Al Franken. Two more women have told Huffington Post that Senator Al Franken touched their butts in separate incidents. These are the third and fourth such allegations against Franken in the past week. Leanne Tweeden, radio host, wrote last week that Franken had kissed and groped her without her consent during a 2006 USO tour. On Monday, Lindsay Menz accused Franken of groping her at the Minnesota State Fair in 2010. That story, honestly, I find a lot of these stories pretty wild because, you know, I speak on a lot of college campuses and I speak before young audiences, a lot of college-age girls, and I take pictures with with everybody in the audience. I take tons of pictures with these people. The Minnesota State Fair story with Franken is that there's a young woman who came up to him who's maybe 26 years old, and she went. In, he, he came to the picture, he grabbed her head, put it next to his, and then proceeded to grab her bottom. Okay, this is, I literally take thousands of pictures a year with, with people, uh, including thousands of pictures a year with, with young women. I have never even come close to doing anything remotely like this. I, I, I'm just... I'm bewildered by this. Is this common practice and I just missed it? Like, is this a shocking to, to, am I the only one shocked by this? Like, it, I get the feeling that there's a whole coterie of, of older politicians who think this is totally cool. People in Hollywood who, for, for whom this is just a normal thing. But like grabbing a woman who I've never even met by the butt is just like, is this a thing? Did I miss it? Because it seems kind of bad to me. The two additional women who said they were not familiar with each other's stories, both spoke on condition of anonymity. But their stories, which describe events during Franken's first campaign for the Senate, so he's running for Senate and he's grabbing butts, they're remarkably similar. Both women have been telling him privately for years. In a statement to HuffPost, Franken said, it's difficult to respond to anonymous accusers, and I don't remember those campaign events. The first woman, 
who spoke to HuffPo on condition of anonymity because she was worried she'll be harassed online for making the allegation, which is exactly right, said Franken groped her when they posed for a photo after a June 25, 2007 event hosted by the Minnesota Women's Political Caucus in Minneapolis. She said, my story is eerily similar to Lindsey Menz's story. He grabbed my butt during a photo op. The second woman told HuffPost that Franken cupped her butt with his hand at a 2008 Democratic fundraiser in Minneapolis, then suggested the two visit the bathroom together. She spoke on condition of anonymity out of fear the allegation could affect her position at work. She said, my immediate reaction was disgust. Well, yeah, I mean, if you met or seen Al Franken. Said, but my secondary reaction was disappointment. I was excited to be there and to meet him, and so to have that, that happen really deflated me. It felt like, is this person the person who's going to be in a position of power to represent our community? And the first woman, she said, my mother loves Al Franken. She listened to Air America, so I guess her mother was the only listener to Air America in the history of that, of that station slash network. She says, I saw him and asked if we could take a photo together for my mother. And we stood next to each other. And down his hand went. HuffPost t- talked to two sources close to the first woman who corroborated her account. One fellow choir member, Sarah, remembers not only being there for the groping incident, but hearing another choir member say that Franken wouldn't stop looking at her chest. You know, looking, at the, looking at the chest is, uh, is not great, but grabbing somebody is, is a whole different thing. It's misdemeanor sexual assault, basically, uh, if, you, if you grab somebody by the, by the butt. So, well done, Democrats. And what's amazing is that the same Democrats who are saying that Republicans must universally run away from Roy Moore, they're saying, well, you know, on Franken, eh, we'll pass on that. You know, let's give him another chance, Al Franken. And Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono, she says, you know, I'm not going to call for Franken to step down. You know, I'll call for everybody else to step down, but not, not Al Franken. Not, we need Al Franken. Is Hirono. The Democratic senator. Do we have that audio? Okay, in any case, uh, Maisie Hirono called for a Franken. She, she said it was a distraction. Uh, if, if Franken were to be called to step down, that would be a distraction. And you're seeing this from Democrats routinely. Right? Do Matthew you think Dowd. he should resign? I think that that is a distraction to be talking about resignation because what's really at the bottom of this whole issue of sexual harassment is that it is uh, um, pervasive in our culture, and Al will be going through the ethics probe. He'll be cooperating, and that's appropriate because people who do these kinds of indefensible um, acts have to be held accountable. But at the same time, we live in a culture where the objectifying of women, treating women as objects and basically toys. You know, I'm glad that this is coming to the fore now because um, myself and every woman that I know has endured sexual harassment of uh, one sort or another, and it does run the gamut from indefensible bad behavior to criminal behavior. And what I'm looking for is a, a discussion and debate and decisions and actions on how do we prevent these uh, actions from happening and then, if uh, necessary, to prosecute. Oh, shut it. Oh, shut it. That, like, she, she doesn't care about sexual harassment or sexual assault so long as her boy gets in, right? I mean, that's all that's happening here. All these Democrats, they, they, they pretend that they care deeply about these issues. This is why I say, all that's happening right now is that people are doubling down on their hypocrisy. Nobody cares enough about these issues in order for anybody to actually stand up and lose something or risk losing anything. And the Democrats who are, who are sitting here talking about, oh, Trump is so terrible. Oh, Republicans are so terrible because they, they're standing by Roy Moore. They're all standing by Franken. Now, I think the allegations against Moore are worse than the allegations against Franken, but they are certainly both get-out-of-the-Senate-worthy if they're true. I think everyone basically agrees with that. But here's, here's the problem. All, of the, all, all the Democrats really care about is throwing people over the, side of the, uh, over the side of the boat 
when they're no longer of use, when they become useless. So another person who's, who's become useless is John Conyers. A bunch of Democrats saying, oh, Conyers should go. We should really get, get, rid, get rid of, of John Conyers. Right? And here's Jeffrey Tubin's excuse for getting rid of Conyers. He's the, the leftist CNN political slash legal analyst. He's talking about John Conyers, who's now, it, it turns out, had at least one sexual harassment settlement with our taxpayer dollars. Here's Jeffrey Tubin explaining that, that why Conyers should go. He's not going to go because he's a sexual harasser. He should go because he's useless. He's 88 years old, and anybody who has spent five minutes in Congress watching him in action knows he's out of it. He is not, he is too old to be in Congress. He is not up to the job. And, you know, he is a walking advertisement for term limits. I know that the Supreme Court has said they are unconstitutional, but it is absolutely outrageous that that man in that condition is getting a salary from the taxpayers. It, it, you know, to do this so that's job. why we should throw him out, according to Tubin. Not because he is a sexual harasser, not because he's assaulting people. It, it, we should throw him out because he's useless now, right? He's not good at his job. And we got the same routine with Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton was president, then it was keep him in office. Do you understand how important it is to have him in office? Now, what's hilarious about Franken, and this is true of Clinton, too, is that if Franken were to go, if the Democrats were to throw Franken overboard, immediately the person who replaced him would be a Democrat. The governor of Minnesota right now is a Democrat. They just appoint another Democrat to fill that seat. But here's what they're really afraid of. And there's a columnist uh, named, I believe it's Michelle Goldstein, writing for the New York Times, and she basically said as much. She essentially said, my problem is that if we do away with Al Franken, if we throw Al Franken out of the Senate, then every Democrat has done this. <laughs> and so we'll have to throw all of them out. And if we throw all of them out, Republicans might win. And if Republicans win, then they're going to push against our agenda. So exactly the same logic that they're ripping in President Trump. They're using themselves. Exactly the same logic that you heard from President Trump earlier with regard to Roy Moore. We don't want a liberal Democrat in the Senate. Democrats are saying the exact same thing about Republicans, even in cases like Franken, where there's no chance a Republican's going to take that seat. It just shows how, how much everybody is lying about this kind of stuff. And, and, and how the narratives that they're drawing are really false narratives. They're, they're not true narratives. So Katie Turr, who is a, a leftist, uh, again, political analyst over at MSNBC, you know, she was ripping on Trump for using this sort of logic. She says, you know, does the White House see a, a molester or a Democrat as worse? Here, here's Katie Turr's insane take. It is a take. brutal question, but one that requires asking in this political environment under this president. Which does this White House view as worse? An accused pedophile or a Democrat? Okay, but I don't, I don't see any of them asking. Who does the, the Democratic Party view as worse? Al Franken or like Al Franken's Democratic replacement, for God's sake? We're not even talking about replacement with a Republican, right? But you never asked that question. There was an actual chyron on CNN that says Trump endorses alleged child molester over Democrat. Okay, well, I didn't see them saying the same thing over Bill, uh, with regard to Bill Clinton. The Democrats back Bill Clinton over Al Gore, alleged rapist Bill Clinton over Al Gore. You don't see that happen ever with, with the Democrats. It's, it is amazing. Now, I don't want to do whataboutism here because I'm not a big fan of it. And I think that all of these people should go if you believe they're guilty, and I believe virtually all of them are guilty and all of them should go. But the idea that Democrats are going to sit on their high horse here is just absurd. Matthew Dowd, who is a former Republican, he's no longer a Republican as far as I can tell. Maybe he still calls himself one, but I don't really see it. He tweeted this out today. He tweeted out, every leader and each of us, is human and flawed and makes mistakes. But there is a difference between those who are flawed, who work for the common good, and those who are flawed, who could care less about the common good. Huge difference. This is the reality of, of the way politics is now done, particularly on the left. 
right? It, we're all flawed. But as long as you agree with me on politics, your flaws are secondary. We don't care about your flaws. So long as you agree with me about collectivist policies on health care and tax, then, okay, so yeah, sexually harass the help. Big deal. Big deal. This is the great lie that's being promoted by the media, is that suddenly they found a standard. They didn't find a standard. It's a lie. They're throwing Bill Clinton under the bus because he's no longer useful. They're taking his desiccated skull and tossing it under the wheels of their tank because Bill Clinton is no longer useful. John Conyers, he's going to join them under there. Al Franken, it's going to take a lot to get Al Franken out of the Senate right now. Al Franken's going to stick around, at least until Democrats realize that they have more to lose than, than to gain by keeping Al Franken around. Now, I do think... And, you know, this is sort of my case on why we should be policing our own in the Republican Party, even if Democrats aren't. I think that Republicans are held to a different standard by the electorate, fair or not. The reality on the ground, the reality on the ground is that Republicans are held to a different standard. I'm thinking back to 2006, and I was looking at the polling numbers from 2006 the other day. In 2006, Republicans were running behind in the generic ballot. You remember, Republicans going into 2006 in the House of Representatives had a 32-seat majority in the House of Representatives. It looked unlikely that they were going to lose that, even though Democrats had a pretty solid generic ballot lead, somewhere between 8 and 10 points. Then, in late September 2006, Mark Foley, Representative Mark Foley from Florida, he was accused, and it turns out it was true, of, of sexually harassing a, a congressional page, or at least having sex with a male congressional page. And it turns out that members of the Republican echelon, of the, the higher echelon, they had in, initiated an investigation, and they knew about it, and it wasn't public. And immediately the polls jumped to D plus 20. Republicans ended up experiencing a 61-seat swing in the House of Representatives. They went from a 30-seat majority to a 30-seat minority. In other words, the bottom falls out when you are seen as a Republican as standing by immoral behavior. It's not true for Democrats so much, because people expect Democrats to be immoral. This is the party of JFK and Teddy Kennedy and Bill Clinton. But when Republicans are seen as immoral, they get punished. They get punished. So just from a pure politics point of view, this is something that we ought to consider. Now listen, I'm not interested in losing the Alabama Senate seat. I'm not interested in another Democrat sitting in the Senate. I don't want Doug Jones to sit in the Senate. That's why I want a write-in campaign in Alabama. But what I will say is that if we are going to look at every election as though it's in a vacuum, as though it has no impact on other elections, that's not the way that politics works. That's not the way that politics works. And Republicans will be punished more by the public and by the media, fair or not, for standing by people who are credibly alleged to have done bad things than Democrats will because nobody has any standards for Democrats. That may be unfair, but it's a reality we're going to have to cope with. And we can either deal with it by just ignoring that and trying to forge forward anyway and stand by everybody who, who's attacked, or we can say we can, we can do what I think is, is the moral thing and try to look at our own house and say, okay, who here uh, is credibly alleged to have done things? But again, if you don't believe that, that people have been credibly alleged, then not only should you vote, you should give money. Okay, so as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I'm going to talk about hypocrisy within the media itself because there's an astonishing amount of hypocrisy within the media itself over all the sexual harassment stuff. We'll talk about it. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. Man, I wonder if Al Franken just hit the tipping point. I mean, that story from Huffington Post that he was apparently grabbing a couple of women by the butt at political events, you know that's not the end of the story. You know that this is just the, the dam beginning to burst, that by tomorrow, they're going to be, a, I mean, he's going to have a dongs giving. I mean, 
guy is just, wow. Uh, there are going to be dozens of women who come forward now and say that Al Franco is grabbing their butts. Again, as I said earlier in the show, like what would possess a guy to go to public political events and grab a random woman by the by the butt is just, it, it's beyond me. It's beyond me. I think that he may be a net political liability now for the Democrats to the point where they say, you got to go, right? That you're, you're basically toast. That he's, he's, and one of the women is saying that she's a liberal person and she voted for him after this happened. Um, and, uh, this, again, this woman said she was in an all women's choir and was at, and he was at an event where she performed and she told, the, and this woman said to her friend that he basically grabbed her butt. So, uh, Franken's got to be toast at this point, right? I mean, he's got to be toast. Just so that Democrats can claim that Republicans are hypocrites over Roy Moore, they have to toast him. So, and maybe the only good news in all of this is that the, the desire, the, the partisan desire on the part of Democrats to destroy Republicans means that they'll have to toss Al Franken overboard, which means that Republicans will have to clean their own house and eventually the house will be clean, just out of partisan hatred. Or alternatively, everybody will, will go back to their bunkers and pretend that all is well. Just astonishing, astonishing stuff. Meanwhile, speaking of hypocrisy in the media, Dylan Byers is a CNN reporter, and he had a tweet yesterday that was just an amazingly, an amazingly toned up tweet. He tweeted, beyond the pain and humiliation women have endured, which is, of course, the paramount issue, it's worth taking stock of the incredible drain of talent from media and entertainment taking place right now. Never has so much talent left the industry all at once. So obviously the media have their eye on the thing that matters most, not the suffering of women, but, you know, whether, whether Glenn Thrush has a job. So that's that's good. Feminist Bette Midler is also going after one of Al Franken's accusers. So it's fun. Bette Midler, who has spent her entire career pretending to be a feminist, now when it's Al Franken who's on the chopping block, she's coming out in his defense. She tweeted yesterday about Al, Franker's, Al Franken's first accuser, Leanne Tweeden, uh, who was a, a lingerie model. Uh, she says, better not let Trump see this. He'll want to meet her badly. And there's a picture of her from FHM magazine uh, in a scantily clad bikini, basically. And, uh, you know, again, Midler likes to pretend that she is an advocate for women, but that all goes by the wayside the minute that somebody who she doesn't like is in the crosshairs. So we'll see if Democrats finally have – if they decide to go after Franken, by the way, it's not a matter of principle. We know exactly about Franken what we knew yesterday. If they decide to go after him, it's because his position has become untenable. It's because they found that he is no longer of use to them, and so under the bus, he shall go. Now, meanwhile, speaking of media malfeasance, uh, a couple of days ago, one of the one of the reporters on MSNBC said that her favorite story of the year was Senator Rand Paul being assaulted, you know, basically into into almost permanent pain. According to Kelly Paul, who's Senator Paul's wife, she wrote a column for CNN in which she described the aftermath for Paul in the wake of his neighbor ramming him from behind and leaving him with six broken ribs, three displaced ribs, plural effusion, uh, plural effusion rather, and pneumonia. She said, the average person takes 20,000 breaths a day. Since November 3rd, my husband has not taken a single one without pain. He's not had a single night's sleep uninterrupted by long periods of difficult breathing or excruciating coughing. But apparently that wasn't worthy of any note, right? Like the, the media just treated that as a big joke. The whole thing was a big joke. If it had been a Democrat, of course, they would have treated it a little bit differently. But it's Rand Paul, so I guess ha, 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 ha. Okay, as we continue here on The Mark Levin Show, President Trump gets into a Thanksgiving Eve Twitter fight with the most intelligent man on the planet, LeVar Ball. We'll get into that. We'll describe what is good, what is bad, and what is just kind of honestly hilarious. I'm Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. He's here. He's here. 
Blasting them from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. So here we are. I obviously am not Mark Levin. Mark is out today. Left a little bit early for vacation. And uh, he will be back on Monday. Well-earned rest for the great one. Also, make sure that you check out his show on Fox News. Yes, Mark is going to have a show on Fox News starting February 2018, airing every Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Life, Liberty, and Levin, which is a pretty good name for the show. And uh, make sure that you check that out. I'm Ben Shapiro sitting in for Mark Levin. Mark's always kind when he when he has me on to, to fill in for him behind the mic. It's always an honor. So... I want to say thank you. It's Thanksgiving, so I want to say thank you to President Trump for a few things. Obviously, I want to say thank you for Justice Gorsuch. I want to say thank you, most of all, that Hillary Clinton is not president because the the notion of waking up in the morning with her as president makes me want to vomit just thinking about it. But we we also have to thank President Trump for the fact that the economy continues to do so well. Now, I'm not going to say that Trump himself has been the great impact on the economy because that's not true. Yeah, the fact is that the economy grew rapidly, uh, and it's growing more rapidly now, but it, it was not growing poorly at the end of the Obama administration. The stock market particularly rose tremendously over the course of the Obama years. It's rising faster under President Trump. That has little to do with Obama and a lot to do with Congress. The fact is the business community was not willing to invest. They were not willing to hire. They were not willing to, to spend money until they knew that a Republican Congress is going to stymie the bad ideas of the Democrats. And this just shows you that even when nothing is getting passed, even when no big action is happening on the economy, right, we haven't had tax reform, we haven't had immigration reform, we haven't had any of the things that, that Trump promised legislatively, just the mere fact that Democrats are not in power, screwing around with the levers of control, means that the economy is healing faster and that the economy is growing faster. So two new reports today that are quite good leading into Thanksgiving. First, new claims, according to the AFP, for U.S. jobless benefits fell in mid-November, confirming the strength of American labor markets, continuing a record streak of low levels. Official data showed on Wednesday the results suggested November could see continued strong job creation as employment recovers from hurricane-related disruptions at the end of the summer. Data were collected during the weekly survey uh, for the Labor Department's monthly jobs report. The record run of low levels could also be one factor nudging central banks toward adopting a third interest rate increase for the year when it meets next month. For the week ending November 18th, new claims for unemployment insurance dropped by 13,000 to 239,000, matching analyst expectations. That means the jobless claims have now been held below 300,000 for 142 weeks or nearly three years, which is a long streak. Obviously, the economy is accelerating under President Trump. Plus, Christmas bonuses have jumped as well. They jumped 66%, according to Secrets from Accounting Principles. They said the average bonus will jump from $1,081 last year to nearly $1,800 this year. 39% of companies plan to give employees other perks throughout the year instead of a bonus, according to the Washington Examiner. And uh, it is it is clear that that employers are looking forward to a strong year next year. Now, part of that depends on Congress doing its job and passing some form of useful tax tax reform. It has to happen. One of the big problems with the way that tax reform is being done is that the Republicans have not even made the case for why this tax reform is useful. The vast majority of the tax cuts are not coming in the individual brackets. They're coming in the corporate brackets. That's necessary. We do need to lower the the corporate tax rate. We have the the highest corporate tax rate in the industrialized world. It's at 35% right now. It should be at 20% to be on par with other countries. That needs to happen so that corporations will feel freer to spend. And there's been a lot of talk about corporations plowing their earnings 
back into stock buybacks and, and driving up corporate profits. One of the reasons for that is because they don't want to be taxed at nearly as high a rate. So if they take that money and they use it in one way versus another, there are certain tax benefits that accrue. But when it comes to lowering the corporate tax rate, that is going to cause companies to invest. It's why you've seen the stock market heating up. It's why a lot of analysts have suggested that if it looks like Republicans don't pass this thing, or if it looks like they're going to delay by a year the corporate tax cuts, then you might see an economic readjustment. You might actually see a slight retrenchment in the market. You might see the market drop a little bit. One of the things that Republicans haven't done is made a strong case for corporate tax reform because we're so used to talking about individual tax returns. It's true that the individual tax reform is going to lower taxes. It's not going to lower them dramatically for the vast majority of people. It'll lower them a little bit. For people at the top, particularly in states like California and New York, it will screw those people. Those people will actually have their taxes go in the wrong direction. And there are a lot of holes in tax reform because they're trying to fill in gaps that are left by by the, the corporate tax rate reduction. In other words... Here's the way that it works. In order to pass something right now, 51 votes in the Senate, the Congressional Budget Office has to say, they have to basically testify, that that tax reform is not going to be a net loss of revenue to the government. The government's not going to lose money on the deal. That means they have to come up with the money from somewhere else. Well, if they're not going to come up with the money from the corporate side, they're going to have to come up with it with, from the individual side. So that means getting rid of state and local tax deductions, which punishes people from high-tax states like Massachusetts, California, and, and New York. It means getting rid of some of the deductions with regard to home ownership. It means getting rid of some of the deductions for things like student income earned if you're a grad student. It means that they're getting rid of deductions for spending your own money on, on school supplies. All of this leaves the Republicans really vulnerable, which is why this, this bill is pulling really badly. This is where President Trump really should be doing more, I think, and I hope he would, to promote tax reform if it's something he really cares about. He should be making a strong case for why it's necessary and why it's going to make the economy better. But I will say this. The economy is doing quite well under President Trump. If it continues to do well under President Trump, then he has to be a favorite for re-election. I don't think that people decide based on the economy solely how they're going to vote. But I do think that if it goes the other way, if the economy takes a hit, then Trump's going to have real trouble with re-election. If the economy continues to grow at this rate, then President Trump, I think, uh, will have a much easier road. With that said, you know, I think that it's time for some folks on the left to express a little bit of gratitude to, to President Trump, even for things that they may hate President Trump. They may think that he's terrible. They may think he says terrible things and that he's, that he's defiled the public discourse. You know, I, I think that it's hard to make the argument that he's defiled the public discourse when it was already so defiled. I may not like what President Trump does on a daily basis with his rhetoric, but uh, this toilet was a toilet before President Trump found it. But one of those people who refuses to... to give any element of thanks, is, of course, LeVar Ball. So CNN the other night did a 20-minute interview with LeVar Ball. Okay, to, to give you a, a sort of analogy, that is the equivalent of giving a 20-minute interview to a bar stool. Like, not a person on a bar stool, an actual bar stool. LeVar Ball is one of the more unintelligent figures on the American public scene. And LeVar Ball was saying things like he didn't want to say thank you to President Trump for getting his son Leangelo Ball freed from Chinese custody. Leangelo, you'll recall, is a UCLA basketball player who decided it would be a wise move to shoplift while in China, which is not smart. And then the potential sentence for shoplifting was five to ten years. And President Trump worked with uh, President Xi over in China to free Leangelo Ball. And then President Trump said he wanted... Leangelo to basically say thank you, so Leangelo said thank you, but LeVar would not, because LeVar only cares about the publicity. 
LeVar only wants to be on national TV for 20 minutes. So one of the more idiotic things that he said was that he didn't feel the necessity to say thank you to President Trump because President Trump didn't give LiAngelo a ride on Air Force One. So, in other words, I'm not going to thank you for freeing my son from Chinese custody and getting him out of a maybe 10-year prison sentence. But if you'd given him a plane flight, then I would be thanking you. All of this is highly stupid. So President Trump did what President Trump does best. He went on Twitter and mouthed off about it. So here's what President Trump tweeted. And uh, I have to say that at a certain point, you just have to laugh because it actually is really funny. So here's what President Trump tweeted. Quote, it wasn't the White House. It wasn't the State Department. It wasn't Father LeVar's so-called people on the ground in China that got his son out of a long-term prison sentence. It was me, all caps. Too bad. LeVar is just a poor man's version of Don King, but without the hair. Fair. Oh, I'm thankful for President Trump's Twitter. Just think, President Trump continues, LeVar, you could have spent the next five to ten years during Thanksgiving with your son in China, but no NBA contract to support you. But remember, LeVar, shoplifting is not a little thing. It's, really, it's a really big deal, especially in China. Ungrateful fool. So two things can be true at once. Two things can be true at once. One, LeVar Ball can be an ungrateful fool, and he is an ungrateful fool. I mean, so much so that even Chris Cuomo, that, that living block of wood who anchors on CNN, was defending President Trump over all this, actually going after LeVar Ball on this. LeVar Ball can be uh, the, the world's dumbest human, and it can be also kind of weird that the President of the United States is tweeting out about this still. Uh, like, I, I don't see why this is useful as opposed to, I don't know, talking tax reform. Like, right now, President Trump has such a platform. He has such a capacity to speak truth. He has such an ability to bring attention to any issue he wants. A Border Patrol agent was was murdered the other day. Shouldn't his entire Twitter feed be filled with calls for the wall? Shouldn't that be what President Trump is doing, like, day by day, regularly? Yeah, there's, a, there's a story today about a killing by MS-13, in which MS-13 stabbed someone to death and then removed their heart. It is all in the United States. Shouldn't President Trump be using this as impetus for his immigration program? Instead, he's going on, on Twitter and talking about LeVar Ball. And some people say, well, he can walk and chew gum at the same time. Right, but the media can't and they won't. The media will focus on the LeVar Ball stuff specifically so they don't have to talk about the stuff that matters more. So I would, I would hope that President Trump would get with the program and start talking about the things that matter. That I would definitely be thankful for. Okay, so as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, i got to tell you, this story is so astonishing. It will make you think that the country is done, mainly because I think the country is done. I will tell you all about the most astonishing story I have read today and probably this week. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. Well, Chuck Schumer says that you should bring charts to your Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow to bash the GOP tax plan, so... He's just a joy to behold. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. I think that that's probably... The, that, that, if you're wondering who the jerk is at the dinner, it's the guy who brought Chuck Schumer's charts to Thanksgiving dinner. My chart would look mostly like a middle finger raised to Chuck Schumer if somebody tried to do that at my Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, well, th- i got to tell you, this is the weirdest story that I've seen this week. Yes, it is super weird. Okay, This comes courtesy of uh, my website, The Daily Wire, by Amanda Prestigicomo. Uh, it, here, here it is. You ready? Although we are regularly told that we're now more connected to others than ever before, there's apparently a great sting of loneliness plaguing our so-called progressive lives. With young people delaying marriage or foregoing the tradition entirely, coupled with the cold comfort of technology, the business of professional cuddling has sprouted into a reality. Yes, I am not making this up. Professional cuddling, as in 
One grown human being being pays another grown human being to lie down with them, caress their skin, and cuddle. It's like the sadder, less dignified version of prostitution. So there's a creepy video for Business Insider UK in which a woman named Claudia Romeo says she's been going through a tough time lately and was excited to see if the cuddling session would help lift her spirits. And that's when she calls professional cuddlist Dianas Costa, who classified the session as a safe space where her clients can explore touch. More likely than not, they're not getting the level of touch they need in their everyday life, said Costa. So the video actually shows them uh, awkwardly touching between a cuddler and the client. And then Romeo talks about how pleasing the session was. According to the cuddled woman, the cuddling felt much shorter than it was. A full hour, a full hour of cuddling with a rando and left her feeling very relaxed. The Cuddlist website says our society is hungry to feel close to ourselves and others in healthy ways. Cuddling is a vehicle for this. Let me recommend that if you are ordering a Cuddlist, you need to get a life in a serious way. Their website says, all human beings have bodies and emotions. We need to feel a sense of physical and emotional safety and belonging with others. This is the experience our cuddlists are trained to provide. It is pioneering work. We are bringing together something new and needed to those who are ready to try it. So apparently, this isn't unusual. If you recall, all the way back in August, a bunch of Hillary supporters actually went to the Love Dome in Venice, California, to cuddle away their election day pain. And then after Trump won, the apparently... G-rated cuddle orgies spiked in November after President Trump won. So awkward, so terrible, so awful, and yet so predictable for my generation, the millennials. Only we could be stupid enough to reinvent things like relationships and physical comfort as, let me hire a random person to come over to my house so that I can hug them for an hour. How about forming a real human relationship, people? You know, like with a human who you're not paying like a whore. Like, <laughs> what in the world? Oh, uh, yeah. I think that uh, our civilization may be in a fair bit of trouble. Now, speaking of our civilization being in a fair bit of trouble, the New York Times has an article today about why it is good that Colin Kaepernick uh, is is boycotting the national anthem. They're still obsessed with this thing. They say basically that black people all along have felt uncomfortable with the national anthem and that it is no wonder that the, the national anthem has been boycotted there's an article by Brent Staples over in the New York Times, and he talks about how the, the, the Colin Kaepernick is well in line with people who have hated the, the, who have hated the, the national anthem for, for quite a while. What this, this columnist says is that the histories of the white and black anthems are strikingly different. Apparently there's another anthem called Lift Every Voice and Sing that was used by a lot of black communities. The history of the white and black anthems are strikingly different. James Weldon Johnson and his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing in 1900 to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday at a time when the government seemed to have abandoned altogether the promise of reconstruction. The Star-Spangled Banner began as an ordinary song that competed with other songs for space in the American imagination. It was not until the early 20th century that it acquired the stature of a sacred writ and became an effective loyalty test, an excuse for people who called themselves patriots to harass and beat people who dissented from the song's message. The truth is that the maxims about freedom implied in the song describe a condition the country has yet to achieve. People who confront that reality by kneeling prayerfully on the football field are often more determinedly patriotic than those who reflexively stand. One of the things I hate about this kind of stuff is that the historical revisionism of pretending that we haven't spent the last 80 years with the national anthem as our official national anthem, and that it means what it meant when it was written, it's, it's historically ignorant and it's a twist on reality. 
the truth is, the truth is that the Star Spangled Banner has been a unifying symbol in American national life for 80 years. And the idea that that it was always a dividing symbol as opposed to a uniting symbol is not true. It's been one of the, the great debates, I think, in race relations, is whether people who are, who are looking for racial change should embrace the founding ideology and uniting symbols of the United States and should use those as, as the basis for their crusade or whether they should break with those and attack them. The idea that Colin Kaepernick is doing this because he has some sort of historical knowledge about the Star-Spangled Banner is just absurd. It's just absurd, and particularly on Thanksgiving. You'll see, there will be people tomorrow who say that we can't give thanks in a country this racist. You'll see there will be articles like that from some of the woke sites. When you do that, you foreclose the possibility of us ever uniting again as a country. You prevent the notion that we can ever have anything that we can get together around. And as those symbols disappear, there's less and less that we can feel is is the basis for our common country. We don't share a vision anymore. We don't share a vision of what happiness is. We don't share a vision of, of what the country is built on. If we can't even share the national song, if this becomes the, the arena for dispute, then it's going to be very difficult for us to, to live together. Okay, as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about a couple of policy issues that have come out to elucidate, elucidate you on them, uh, and that is uh, the, the DOJ's decision on Time Warner AT&T merger, whether that is a good decision, as well as net neutrality. So for those Thanksgiving Day discussions that you hate. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Making sure the land of the free and the home of the brave stays that way. Dial Mark Levin now at 877-381-3811. So two major issues come before the Trump administration. I think they get one right and I think they get one wrong. The one they get right is net neutrality. So you've heard a lot about net neutrality. What you've really heard is just that phrase, net neutrality. What net neutrality is, is this idea that the the government should regulate Internet service providers, AT&T or Verizon, they, they, should, they should regulate those Internet service providers like public utilities, meaning that AT&T, Verizon, all of these Internet companies, they provide you your Internet connection. And what they could do theoretically in a free market is charge certain websites more to load faster. And then they could charge certain websites less to load faster. They could charge Netflix more to load faster because Netflix takes up an inordinate amount of bandwidth because video on the Internet costs a lot of bandwidth. Well, net neutrality says that you're not allowed to do that. You have to charge every company the same, basically, for the use of the Internet. That if you are Netflix, then you're going to pay the same per byte as random blogger living in mommy's basement. Net neutrality was, was designed by a lot of these corporations like Google like Netflix, like Facebook, ones that take up a lot of bandwidth so they don't have to pay a lot of money to the Internet service providers. Does that mean that it's better for consumers? Not really. Not really. Because the fact is that if Netflix and and Google and all these other places were, were actually paying more for their use of the Internet, your prices might go up on those services, but if you weren't actually using those services, then your prices might go down on your actual Internet charge. So you could divide up how the Internet was used. You could buy a program that only provided you non-video streaming and pay less for it. You could provide a, a, a Internet that provided you with certain websites and not others. It would create more competition in the marketplace. The truth is that one of the reasons that people think net neutrality is necessary is because local governments have basically restricted the sort of lines that can be placed into local areas. So a lot of the monopolies that exist exist because local governments have created those monopolies. 
There's no reason for those monopolies to exist. So when you deregulate the system, you get what you get in every other deregulated system, better service for cheaper and more competition among those services. So whenever you hear people on the left say that net neutrality is is being backed by the big corporations, being backed by the Internet service providers, recognize that Facebook, Google, Netflix, these are all major corporations raking in billions of dollars per year, and all of those support net neutrality because it helps them. So the Trump administration is now going to remove net neutrality rules. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, he says that his plan to remove net neutrality rules is actually a return to the Internet back how it was in the 1990s, the new net neutrality rules weren't actually created until 2015 under the Obama administration. Heavy-handed regulations, those are going to go. That's a good move by the Trump administration. Now, in other news that I don't think is quite as good, uh, the, the Trump administration, the DOJ, has moved to block a merger between AT&T and Time Warner, the parent company for CNN. And it looks a little bit like corruption, or at least it could look like corruption. So here's what you need to know about this, and it's created some headlines. Basically, AT&T provides you your Internet or provides you your cable, and they want to merge with the content provider that is Time Warner. So Time Warner is not Time Warner Cable. It's a different company. We're talking about the parent company to CNN and HBO Time Warner. So basically, AT&T is saying, we want to buy up HBO and CNN, and then we will make money off of that because we'll own both the method of distribution, and we will also own the, the actual content that's being produced. So if you subscribe to HBO, you'll pay HBO. AT&T will clear that, plus you'll be paying for the AT&T service, and they'll clear that too. It's vertical integration. It's not horizontal integration. Now, the, the argument against this is presumably that AT&T could benefit CNN and cut out Fox News. That seems really unlikely to me. And if you if they did that, then everybody who subscribes to Fox News would simply dump AT&T. So it would be a stupid move by AT&T to do that. So it, one, of the, one of the questions here is whether there is an element of corruption. And the reason that that's become a question is because Trump has gone after CNN so hard. So one of the things that the Trump administration has suggested is that maybe if Time Warner divests itself of CNN, if Time Warner actually sells CNN, then maybe they'll be able to uh, be bought. The, the, maybe they'll be able to be bought by AT&T. I, I think all of this is is nonsense. I think that unless there is a full blown monopoly in which the government is basically sponsoring the monopoly, the government has no business getting involved in these sorts of business transactions. I think that this is setting a very negative precedent because let's say in the future Fox News wants to make a business deal and a Democrat is president and decides to nix it on the basis that it's a monopoly. We're going to cry bloody murder as well we should. Get the government out of the business of regulating things that it shouldn't be regulating. Even if you hate CNN, this is not a question of hating CNN. This is a question as to whether consumers are being hurt if AT&T owns CNN. I don't see how they are, and I think it's a mistake for conservatives to, to bend over for, for this just because they don't like CNN. I think it's, a, it's, it's setting a bad precedent. Okay, well, I want to take a few minutes here to explain the true story of Thanksgiving, because Thanksgiving's tomorrow, and you're going to hear the kind of anodyne version of what Thanksgiving was. What you're going to hear about Thanksgiving is it was a time when all of the pilgrims came to the United States, and they didn't know how to farm, and the Native Americans taught them how to farm, and then everything was happily ever after, and cornucopias and pumpkins and such. That's not really the story. The story actually has a lot to do with Christianity. The story has a lot to do with faith. So the Puritans who came to Massachusetts on the Mayflower, they were not actually emissaries of religious tolerance. They left liberal Holland. Holland was a liberal place that, that basically allowed them to do what they want. To push for, quote, the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. It says it right in the Mayflower Compact. So Christianity was more important than multiculturalism to the heroes of Plymouth Rock. And Christianity actually saved the Puritans, not multiculturalism. 
And here, here's why that is. Okay, the first winter that the, the pilgrims arrived in the United States, or in America at the time, the first winter, half of the new settlers died. That was because of drought and plague and failure to understand the crops. Then a guy named Squanto showed up. So you remember Squanto from grade school. But they don't tell you the full story of Squanto. So Squanto was not just a Native American refugee from the Disney movie Pocahontas. He was actually a Christian. It's an amazing story. Somebody needs to make a movie out of Squanto. Squanto was just a boy when he met the English for the first time. He was captured by the English and sent back to England for training as a guide. And then in 1614, he returned to America with John Smith of Pocahontas fame. But he was kidnapped again by one of Smith's men and then sent back to Spain and sold into slavery. This is where Spanish monks bought him and then taught him Christianity and freed him. He ended up in England. He earned the respect of an Englishman who actually paid for his passage back to the New World. In 1619, Squanto went back to America. Unfortunately, by the time he got back, his entire village had been killed by disease. So he gets back. He doesn't know anyone. Now he's Christian. He's not uh, of Native American religion anymore. One year after that, after Squanto has gone through all of this, right, he's gone back to Britain, he's come back to America, he's been captured again and sold to Spain, he's been freed, he's gone back to England, then he goes back to the United States and everybody's dead. One year after that, the pilgrims show up. And where do they settle? They settle directly in Squanto's village. And Governor William Bradford wrote that Squanto had become, quote, a special instrument sent of God for our good. He never left us till he died. It was Christian Squanto, not Native Americans generally, who taught the pilgrims how to farm because he felt he had a Christian duty to help his fellow Christians learn how to farm. With Squanto's help, the pilgrims survived to celebrate the first Thanksgiving in 1621. He died one year later of disease. He asked Bradford to pray for him so that he could go to the, quote, Englishman's God in heaven. Right, so a lot to do with Christianity here. And a lot to do with, with the fact that you know, certain cultural connections led Squanto to help out the Christians who arrived in the United States, or well, arrived in America. But that's not the end of the story. So the pilgrims had set up a couple of obstacles for themselves. One of the biggest obstacles they set up for themselves was basically communism. So when they arrived, they wanted a religious utopia, a giant commune. And as you would expect, like virtually all of the communist organizations, it failed in spectacular fashion. Governor William Bradford wrote this, quote, the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years and by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of later times that the taking away of private property and the possession of it in, com in community by a commonwealth would make a state happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. Community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit. So in other words, communism did exactly what communism is expected to do. People acted just like Bernie Sanders at the commune. They sat back, they did nothing, and everything went to pot and people died. Because communism is always and everywhere a failure and will be always and everywhere forever. That is just the way that it works. So what happened next? Well, the, the pilgrims, they basically created private property. In 1623, after that first Thanksgiving, they trashed the system. According to Bradford, quote, the governor with the advice of the chief among them, allowed each man to plant corn for his own household, so every family was assigned a parcel of land. This was very successful. It was so successful that a century and a half later, George Washington explained the legacy of religious purity in his first Thanksgiving proclamation. It is the duty of all nations, he said, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. So remember, Thanksgiving is indeed a religious holiday. It was based on a religious overthrow of communism. It was based on a, a religious connection with a, a man who'd been enslaved and then in saint-like fashion not only converted to Christianity but came back 
to help out fellow Christians after things had gone wrong at Plymouth Rock. And we should all be thankful for, for the sacrifice of all of those who came before us and, uh, and the progression of the United States toward a place that is, is more in line with the, the Christian godly ideals of the founding uh, than it was even at the time of the founding, at least insofar as things like race relations uh, and, and, and overcoming obstacles like sexism. Okay, as we continue here on The Mark Levin Show, I want to talk a little bit more about Thanksgiving, plus, again, breaking news, Al Franken, two more women accusing him of sexual harassment. We'll talk about it. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. Democrats have such problems. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, just when you think that they finally have gotten a leg up, no such deal. So a couple of stories for you. Number one, the fundraising numbers were released on Tuesday. The Democratic Party and its magical leader, Tom Perez, managed to raise a grand total of $3.9 million in October. One-third of the $9.2 million raised by the RNC. That's the worst October the DNC has had in 15 years. 15 years. The Republicans have now raised $113 million for the year. They have approximately $40 million ready in the bank for the 2018 midterms. Democrats have raised approximately $55 million and have $5 million available for 2018 races. Plus, they still have $3.2 million in debt from the 2016 campaign. Apparently, part of the problem is Donna Brazil. You remember Donna Brazil has been making the rounds talking about what a great job she did? Yeah, not so much. Not so much. Apparently, according to, according to CNN... Brazil is is basically undercutting all of the all of the DNC's ability to raise money. So well done, Donna Brazil. A big round of applause for her, and we appreciate your your work on behalf of the Trump administration. So good job, Donna Brazil. Meanwhile, in other breaking news, as I mentioned, two more women have now accused Al Franken of groping them. Apparently, he was groping them at like church choir. Yeah, really. The first woman, a 38-year-old book editor, told Huffington Post her interaction with Franken came after she had performed with a feminist choir at the Women's Political Caucus on June 25, 2007. A feminist choir. Sounds just great. She said, my story is eerily similar to Lindsay Menz's story. She's the lady who said that at an event in 2010, Franken grabbed her rear. She said, he grabbed my buttocks during a photo op. Franken was at the event with his wife. Love it. The woman said after the ceremony ended, members of the choir asked to take photos with Franken. And the woman continued uh, that down his hand went. There's a second woman who said that she uh, she told a bunch of people about the incident years ago. She said that she never attended a, a Democratic fundraiser before. She went to a Democratic fundraiser and she got more than she bargained for. She said, I shook his hand. He put his arm around my waist and held it there. Then he moved it lower and cupped my butt. And the second woman said she tried to excuse herself to go to the bathroom, but Franken allegedly suggested that he go with her, which is never a good move. Instead, she grabbed a friend and ran to the bathroom. Franken said that he uh, he categorically denies that he did not proposition anyone to join him in the bathroom. He says, I did not proposition anyone to join me in any bathroom. Oh, boy. Here's what the second woman said. Franken's got to be toast at this point, you think? I mean, like, how much longer can, can he stand here? How much longer can the Democrats do this? The second woman said, I felt, I felt like I didn't have a voice. This man had all of the power, all of the authority. In addition, he is a white man, and I am a woman of color. I was 21 years old. Oh, boy. So if Franken goes after her, the entire left is going to implode because sexist, racist. Woo. She says, I was afraid that he would use all of those privileges to discredit me. Oh, boy. She's even using the word privileges. So if this allegation is true, 
and she's using this kind of language. Oh, 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 Al Franken, you can kiss your job goodbye. It's just uh, the, the first woman who ever posted about about all of this about Franken originally on October 12th had posted, quote, are we sharing which famous man has groped us? Mine's Al Franken. So bad news for the Democratic Party. In other news, you remember when Democrats were going nuts over Ed Gillespie talking about being soft on immigration, meaning being soft on MS-13, and MS-13 being dangerous, and the Democrats basically saying MS-13 doesn't exist. Yeah, it turns out MS-13 exists. According to NBCWashington.com, as many as 10 members of the gang MS-13 stabbed a man more than 100 times in a Maryland park, then ripped out his heart and buried him. Sounds like a nice group of folks. You know, open borders, open borders. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what your problem is. I don't see the problem. Open borders. What's the big deal? Court documents released Wednesday reveal gruesome details about the killing of a man officials in Montgomery County still have not been able to identify. Miguel Angel Lopez Abrego, 19, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. A ranking gang member told police that Lopez Abrego was the first person to stab the victim. The informant said that he, Lopez Abrego, and eight other MS-13 gang members lured the victim to Wheaton Regional Park this spring. For about two weeks, they planned how to get the man to go from the Annapolis area to Wheaton because they planned to kill him and dispose of his body. Apparently, Lopez Abrego helped dig a grave for the victim and used a walkie-talkie to tell the other gang members when the victim had arrived. According to the informant, then the gang members choked him, stabbed him more than 100 times, decapitated him, dismembered him, ripped his heart from his chest, and threw it into the grave they dug for him. So these sound like just the kinds of folks you want to bring home to mom. On September 5th, the informant led detectives to the body. Police are still working to identify the victim. The investigators released several pieces of clothing and a rosary that were found with him. The items included a rosary, a sweatshirt, and a Methodist church logo and a pair of blue shorts. The victim, the police say the victim was a Hispanic man, five foot two, 126 pounds. So for all those people who keep saying open borders are no problem, why should we worry about MS-13? Why should we worry about any of this? Again, this is where I want President Trump to be. President Trump, if you're listening, you know, on this Thanksgiving Eve, put your focus here. This is where you can do good. Put your focus here. Spend time talking about this story. Spend time talking about the dangers that exist for American citizens in having gangs like MS-13 present and why we need a hardcore immigration reform, why we need a wall. This is what you were elected to do. So do it. Listen, now I'm one of the, the people who didn't vote at the top of the ticket. Last time around, I'm very grateful to President Trump that he's done some of the things I want him to do and that so many members of his base wanted him to do, Judge Gorsuch being obviously the top priority. But the number one thing he campaigned on was the wall. Not one inch of the wall has been built. Not one inch. President Trump, whatever focus you're putting on other issues, put your focus instead on the issue that got you elected, if any issue did. This is that issue. And then we can all be thankful. Then we can have a, a safer, more secure country. Or you don't have to worry quite as much about people stabbing other people a hundred times, burying them in a shallow grave, ripping out their heart and tossing it next to them. Well, on that bright note, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm thankful to Mark for having me on the show. I'm thankful to you to bearing with me today. And I'm thankful for the greatest country God ever created. And I'm thankful to God, the God who created it. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin. 